Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a past guest, Srinivas Rao, uh, who's the author and the host and founder of the very popular podcast, The Unmistakable Creative, where he's interviewed over 500 creative people. Former guests include uh, on the show people like Tim Ferriss, Simon Sinek, and Seth Godin. He's also uh, self-published a book, The Art of Being Unmistakable, which actually led to the revamped version, which hit the New York Times bestselling list. So He's got another book coming out soon called An Audience of One, and it's all about reclaiming your creativity. Today, we're going to dive into a few different topics. So we actually talk a little bit in the beginning about interview skills. And uh, this is a very important topic, regardless of your profession, regardless of your uh, creative outlet. And we dive deep into how to develop a really great interview skills, whether you are on the side of the interviewer or the interviewee. Uh, and then we dive into creative habits and we talk about uh, setting up your environment for creativity. We talk about some of the habits towards the end of the podcast that will be conducive for your creativity to flourish, how to get into flow, what some of the blocks are. And the the real main premise of this is all coming from the place of how most people, most people in our culture, because we live in this very real uh, age of noise within social media, how mo most people are trying to build a brand, uh, not really specifically around any expertise or any area at all. They're just trying to build a brand and then, you know, let that speak for themselves. And Cerny has a very different approach where he says, let the work speak for itself. So let the creativity speak for itself. And if you can go down that path, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And so that's, that's part of what we'll talk about. We'll talk about some of the creative habits and we will dive into uh, the audience of one, how to create for yourself first and to let go of the worry and the anxieties and the expectations of other people because that's often what is preventing us, what's stopping us from creating, is that oftentimes we feel this huge amount of pressure from the expectations that we have on ourselves, from the need to create a piece of content and have it go super viral, you know, to have millions of people see it, to see the video, to see the blog post, to see the painting or the piece of music that we've created. And Srini has a very different approach of saying, create it for yourself. And here's how to do that. But create it for yourself and your fans, your followers will, will naturally emerge out of that space. So uh, without any further delay, I'm going to bring him on. But I just want to say uh, for all the guys out there, don't forget to head on over and join the Man Talks community. We've got 3,500 guys from around the globe in there. We talk about everything from fitness to fatherhood to finances. Like you name it, we dive into it. Uh, and don't forget to man it for Share this podcast with just one person goes a long way. So if you found value in any of our past episodes, please share one of them with someone that you think would benefit from it. So uh, without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Srinivas Rao. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm excited, man. The last time that, uh, that we chatted and we jammed on the show, I really loved the interview. And, and for those that are listening, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, if you enjoy this interview, definitely go back and check out the original interview that we did um, because you really shared some amazing insights on on so many things uh, you know, around depression and your own personal story and your own creative process. And it was really you know, one of the most insightful interviews that I had done in, in, in the very beginning 
um, of the Man Talk show. And I just remember you telling this one story about surfing and the, you know, the disconnection that you were feeling from some of the people in your life. And it was just such a powerful uh, su- such a powerful interview. So I'm excited to have you back on today. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to chat with you. I, I definitely, I, I like conversations like that because they, they leave an impression on me. It's, it's always nice when it, it doesn't feel like you're struggling to, to get the words out or struggling to have a dialogue. And uh, I definitely remember the, the conversation and definitely enjoyed it, which is why I wanted to, to have a chance to connect with you again. Yeah, awesome. Likewise, likewise. Well, let's, uh, before we kind of like dive in, what has, uh, what's been going on in the last year? Why don't you give us a, a quick little update on, I mean, because you've been doing some amazing things out in the world over the last year. So maybe you just give us a, a quick little rundown and highlight reel. Yeah. Well, quick rundown is uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the host of a podcast called The Unmistakable Creative, which uh, has its roots uh, almost as far as 10 years ago, starting out as a podcast for bloggers and then eventually being spun out into a actual site called Blogcast FM, which was the precursor to to what we're, we're doing today. Uh, but since then, uh, I have got, you know, gotten a book deal with a publisher. I've just finished the second book uh, with a publisher, which we'll talk about. I've probably at this point in my life recorded more than 700 episodes of a podcast. Uh, and really, I, I think that what I have, have done is become a student of the art of the interview more than anything else. I, I think that to be an eternal master, you have to be a perpetual student. And my default attitude has become not how do I impress an audience? How do I grow it? But how do I become so good at what I do that people can't help but talk about it and spread the message for me? I think there's a lot of joy in uh, taking something and doing it in a way where your constant measure is not how do you compare to everybody else around you, but how do you compare to the previous version of yourself? And I think that that has started to become the default in with default way in which I, I do my writing. It's the default way in which I definitely do my interviews. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not immune to this tendency to compare myself to people. I think that none of us are. We can talk a little bit about that and some of the, the things that that results in. But overall, uh, you know, we've run Unmistakable Creative for seven years. Uh, just finished a second book with a publisher. Uh, since you and I last spoke, I've, I've built kind of a, a steady speaking career that has grown quite a bit, um, doing keynotes and, and speaking engagements for a wide array of audiences ranging from, you know, something like an electric company cooperative to the International Live Events Association to uh, talking to senior healthcare executives uh, about how to design experiences that are more inspiring and, and provocative and creative for their patients. So it, it's been a really interesting sort of journey because of the fact that the application of these ideas has been far broader than I ever imagined. And I think the the thing that's really interesting about the way that we've gone about building Unmistakable Creative is that we have very much prioritized a commitment to being an entertainer first uh, and educator second, uh, but not making sure that those two, not not having those two things be mutually exclusive. In fact, those are really the two factors that I look for in every interview that I conduct is, am I curious about this person? Will this person lead to an entertaining conversation? And will they educate the audience in some way? Uh, so as a result of that, you get guests that range from bank robbers to drug dealers to performance psychologists to billionaires. We probably have one of the strangest lineups of, of any guest uh, guest lineup in, in, the, in the podcast ecosystem. And that's entirely by design. We, we really wanted that to be the case. And the podcast has grown a lot. Recently, a couple of months ago, I, I threw this you know idea out on, on uh, Facebook and, and a few other places saying, hey, if we were to take the unmistakable creative and, and turn it into a TV show on Netflix or a TV series, would you have any interest in watching? And 
And so we got some really good responses. And then my friend Matt said, well, why don't you just ask your listeners? There's thousands of them who listen every week. So just put in an added to one of the episodes of the show. And, you know, I threw it in about two or three episodes, not making much of it and thinking, okay, well, I guess, you know, nobody was interested. And then uh, a few weeks later, an agent uh, in the television department at CAA got back to me because he heard the ad and it turned out he was one of our fans and (laughs) a longtime listener. So uh, he had been listening for six months. And it it was one of those moments where you thought to yourself, well, shit, you couldn't have asked for a better contact to have this, this, you know, materialize in some way. So, you know, it's in very early phases, who the hell knows what's going to happen, but it was a a very cool sort of moment. So we're, we're in discussions of working on a draft for uh, a pitch for that, uh, new book out. And then obviously the, the podcast is really kind of our bread and butter. I mean, that's what we're known for. That's great, man. That's really solid. I, I love that uh, you just sort of put it out there and, and uh, you know, allow the listeners to contribute to that. I, I always have people reaching out and they're like, how can I help you? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know you. I don't know your gifts. I don't know, you know, how yeah. you want to help. And, and so I love when it's, you just sort of say like, Oh, okay. This is, this is how I could actually use support right now and, and sort of put it out there and allow the ether to, to bring it back to you. So uh, I wanted to just circle back and, and touch on something that you said that I, that I thought was really important, which is in and around interview skills. And I think mm-hmm. that this is really an art form that so few people take the time to to really hone in on to really master and and I would love to just pick your brain a little bit about this because it's so relevant for so many people whether you run your own company you're going to need to interview employees whether you are you know a, a professional you're going to need to really interview clients and understand their needs better so it doesn't really matter what field what profession whether you're an artist interviewing and and interviewing uh, style is so important. So what have you found to be particularly helpful when it comes to sort of mastering the art of interviewing? It's a, it's a great question. It's one that I, I've spent uh, an insane amount of time thinking about. Uh, but there are a couple of different things. So it's interesting because you and I were just talking about audio editing uh, before we hit record here. One of the things that I think uh, that gave me a really big edge that people don't really spend a lot of time thinking about or even know about is the fact that I edited every episode for my, myself for probably the better part of two or 300 interviews. I never outsourced the editing. I never hired somebody to do uh, what is f- a fairly menial and, and somewhat tedious job. Uh, and it, it's a fairly thankless job. But I'll tell you why I think that ended up being a huge advantage. And a friend was actually asking me about this the other day who had just started a podcast. And, uh, and I was really, you know, for, for, to his credit, I was really blown away by the fact that he was so good at what he did. And it was the first time he had ever interviewed anybody. It was, the questions were very thoughtful. It was incredibly deliberate. The production quality blew my mind in terms of how he used music and really informed himself based on a sort of narrative style storytelling, which that's a, that's a complicated edit. I heard it. It's more complicated than the edits that I do for unmistakable creative. And he has a much smaller audience. And I, 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 what I appreciated about that was that there was a commitment to creating something really, really compelling, even if it meant it was going to take a lot of time. Now, the reason I brought up the editing my own interviews is what that did for me was that it forced me to go back and to listen to every single thing that I did multiple times. I had to listen to it once when I conducted the interview. I had to listen to it once when I edited it. And I listened to it again when I published it. So naturally, the result of that is that you're constantly reviewing your work. And inevitably, you're going to notice things that you are not happy with, things that you think could be better. Uh and things that could be smoother. I'll, I'll give you examples in terms of, of the tiniest little things that make a big difference. So, and, and sometimes 
I get feedback from our listeners about verbal tics, things that I did not know that I was doing. And it's annoying because when they point it out to you, you're just like, shit, now I hear it every single time. Uh, so one example, one of the things that I was doing before I was asking a question is every question would be preceded by the phrase, I'm curious. And of course you're curious. You're asking a question. Why would you need to, to you know, uh, to be so, so deliberate about that, saying that? And one of my listeners pointed it out to me. So I went back and I listened and I realized that she was absolutely right. Every time I wanted to ask a question and it, I realized what it was, it was simply just a filler word to make a transition from one thing to the next, but it was completely unnecessary. And when I removed it, it led to a much smoother transition. So there are listeners who are like that, who will email you and they will tell you usually, and I always pay attention to those listeners because they're always smart about how they give me feedback. It's always preceded by, hey, I love the show which immediately I'm like, okay, this is a person who's actually looking at this in my best interest. And they're saying, I think that if you change this one thing, it would be a lot smoother. And they're right. You you listen to moments like that. The other thing that I think going back and listening to your own work allows you to do is to think about questions that you would have asked or threads that you didn't chase down. Because I don't go into any interview with a plan per se. I have no idea what questions I'm going to ask beforehand. I don't make anybody fill out extensive questionnaires. I literally just I see where the conversation is going to take me. Now, some people might call that bad planning or bad preparation. I think research is a double-edged sword. I think you should know about your guests. So for example, if I'm interviewing somebody who has a book, I will always read the book, mainly because I know that if I don't read the book, I won't get to as many interesting questions as I could because the book is usually full of so many nuggets about things that I really want to want to tease apart. So I'll give you an example. Recently, I was uh, going to speak to Susan David, who who wrote the book Emotional Agility, and I realized that for some reason I had not ever noted her book. And I asked her. I said, "Listen, I can do the interview. I remember most of what I want to remember, but." Given the fact that I highlighted and underlined so much of your book, I'm wondering if you would allow me to do that and we rescheduled the interview because I want to be able to reference that uh, based on on some of the questions that I have uh, related specifically to the material. So I quote passages from the book during the interview. As a result of that, of course, it also probably helps drive a lot of book sales for the people that I'm interviewing, which is ideally what you want. But ability to look where you might have missed a thread that could have been interesting is really powerful. So I know where I'm going to start. I know where I'm going to end. I had uh, interviewed Frank Warren, the founder of Post Secret, really, a really fascinating conversation and no shortage of stuff that you can find on the guy. But I really wanted to get this uh, from a very personal standpoint. I think that when you over-research and when you plan your questions too far in advance, what ends up happening is you don't have a conversation. It feels a bit more like an interrogation. So I think it's it's a real balancing act. The funny thing is that people often will say that you seem to really know your stuff, or know about your guests. And usually the guests are kind of shocked when I tell them, well, to be honest, the only thing I really did in this case was read your about page. But there's enough there that I could build an entire story from that. I think that it really, it's about finding threads that you can see within a person's story that you can tease apart and stretch for the sake of a, of a 60 to 65 minute conversation. And there are people that if I really kept at it, I could talk to them for two to three hours, but I don't want to create a two to three hour podcast. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, I mean, I've, I've definitely had those guests on the show sometimes where I'm like, oh my gosh, I could have like a Joe Rogan style 
you know, three hour extended conversation. But, but one of the things that I really like about what you're saying is that there's, there's a, a certain degree of following your intuition around the conversation or your gut around the conversation. And I think what that really requires is that deep sense of curiosity, which mm-hmm. I, I really hear in your style. And what I've found personally is in, in the interviewing is that the more that I am curious about that individual that I'm talking to and their work and and what they're mm-hmm. talking about, the the more it seems to elicit these really great dialogues versus, you know, I remember starting off in the in the podcast game and it was like, yeah, I had these like 20 questions and I asked 20 questions and it really was this like interrogation style. And it made me remember when I was working at Apple because it was very much the same. You're supposed to follow this script when you were interviewing people. And I found that every time I yeah. went off the rails and I didn't follow the the interview guide, I would really get to know the person behind the questions. And it was such a different mm-hmm. conversation that I really got to have insight into who was really going to be a fit and who wasn't. So I, I love I love what you're really bringing forward and and uh, and the answer to the questions. So let me make one other comment about this, mm-hmm. uh, and I think this is important. So people, some people know this, other people don't. I am notorious for having standards that are ruthless when it comes to our guests. I have cut interviews in the middle of them because I didn't feel they were going well. I have refused to publish things if I didn't feel that they were up to to our standard. And I think that with some people, it drives them crazy. But with others, I think they appreciate the fact that I'm holding them to such a high standard. And in my mind, that's not about being a prima donna. It's about serving your audience. And uh, yeah, I recently had a guest who I just felt did not deliver in any way at all. I was I was bored to death talking to him. So I thought if I'm bored to death talking to this guy, I can only imagine how bored people will be listening to this guy. <laughs> so I replaced him with, with my friend Mars Dorian. And of course, that turned out to be phenomenal. And so I think that really what this is, it, it's about a constant commitment to improvement and, and to, to standards uh, and not saying, oh, the standard is downloads or all these sort of arbitrary metrics by which we measure the quality of the work by, but we don't actually commit nearly as much effort to the quality itself of the work, which I think is is really kind of dangerous territory. Mm, no, I like that. And I think it's a, I think it's a really great segue into, you know, one of the main focal points that we're gonna be talking about today, which is, you know, your your latest book, The Audience of One. And and I think it's really really important because it it's it sort of summarizes this idea around not only interviewing but but creativity in in the sense of uh, knowing what you like becoming a master of your domain and and really sort of finding this drive towards not competing against yourself but but being able to be creative with yourself and creative for yourself. And I always find that the episodes that seem to land the most with the with with our audience are the ones that I'm just insatiably curious about and I'm hungry for. And and it's not that I've done hours and hours of pre-work and studying and finding some, you know, detail that I can ask some, you know, weird random out there question about the the guest, but it's that I'm so curious about how they operate. And so how does this how does this apply to to creativity because I think one of the things that you that you talk about in in this latest book is is this idea or this concept around you know creativity for one and I'm curious mm-hmm. to you about why why that's important you know we've kind of been talking about this a little bit on the fringe but why why is this concept so important to learn and and how do we really start to to perform and create from this place. Well, we right now live in a world that is 
largely driven by our need for both attention and validation. In some ways, social media is to blame for this. The fact that uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram have all built tools that effectively not only make us addicted to these things, but are driven by this insatiable desire for validation that keeps us coming back for more. So you post something, it gets, you know, 100 likes and great. And then you come back the next day and you have to redo that to see if you can keep this momentum sustaining. But much like a, a slot machine, which is literally what it's modeled off of, it almost always leaves you feeling empty and almost always you feel dissatisfied because what you're doing is you're constantly trying to impress some other person in some way or, or other. The funny thing is that when we do something as simple as change our profile picture, for example, it's a it, it, our natural instinct because of the way that the tool is built is to assess how people are responding to that. Now, when it comes to creative work, unfortunately, because of the fact that we have these tools, because of the fact that our lives are so publicly on display, in a lot of ways, our creative work has actually been characterized by a very similar approach. People really work hard to, to do things that on the surface appear to be things they could brag about. So, oh, the podcast gets X number of downloads or this happened or that happened. And like I said, I'm not immune to it any more than anybody else is because, for example, the day that I got the first pictures of the finished books, I get to post the book on Facebook, write a post about it. That post gets three or 400 likes and, you know, bunches of shares and a bunch of comments. But the funny thing is that that was one moment in a process that's taken two years. And the thing that really often drives creativity for so many people in the world today is that one moment, unfortunately. And because of that, I think we're missing out on a lot of great creative work. The default sort of cultural narrative that has started to drive the work that we do as creative people is if I can't monetize this, if I can't build a business out of this, or if I can't reach a million people with it, or if I can't develop a skill that I can put on my resume immediately, this is not worth doing. And if those are the filters by which we decide to explore our creativity, that is the very opposite of curiosity. That stifles curiosity because think about how many things are limited with that lens on which you view the world and do things. If you look at the way that we have chosen to do creative projects and unmistakable creative, curiosity is one of the driving forces. I never make decisions about a podcast guest based on how many downloads I think the episode will get. I always make decisions based on how fun I think it is going to be to tell this story and how much I will enjoy telling this story, which is how you end up with the most random lineup of guests imaginable, mainly because I find these people interesting. I think their stories matter. I think that that is something we also have to think about is that there's this notion that a story doesn't matter unless somebody has built some massive presence around it. And in addition to this, what we have is uh, a level of status that is almost idiotic in, in many ways, if you think about it. Because what has happened as a byproduct of the internet is that it's now possible to be famous for being famous. You can be famous because of the number of followers and fans that you have on Instagram or the number of fans that you have on Facebook. And the interesting thing is that you can be famous when you've done absolutely nothing of any real value. And that's absolutely ludicrous. It makes no sense to think that this could lead to a sustaining creative career and for that matter, a sustained sense of creative fulfillment. And the funny thing is that Oprah and Tom Brady were talking about this recently, where she said she knew some 14-year-old girl who was talking about building her brand. And she said, honey, you don't have a brand. She said, the brand comes from the work that you do. 
And that to me was was such a, a profound example of exactly what we're talking about here is that so often the audience has been put before the quality of the work, the marketing has been put before the art, and as a result, the art itself suffers. Yeah, and I think I think one of the you know, there's such a great point and such a great example that you're talking about with the 14 year old girl and and Oprah and what she's saying. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that people often look at you know when you say art. It's it's so much more encompassing than than just you know writing painting that kind of stuff. It, it really is around whatever craft we are are looking to master, whatever we're looking to hone in on. And I think this is so applicable in business too, that that people are looking at their audience, they're looking at how they can build a profile before they look at how they can really do something of value and substance. So. So where do people start then in that creative process? How do they start to re- sort of reclaim this creativity? How do they sort of start to pull it back within themselves? Because I think one of the biggest challenges that I see a lot of people facing is, is that they're passionate about either way too many things or they have no idea what they're passionate about yeah. at all. And, they, and either way, they have no clue where to start. So where do we start in this process? Okay. So let's address both of these situations separately. So uh, the the funny thing is there's no clue where to start, which is, is fine or passionate about too many things, which is a standard problem. But I think that we have to, to kind of figure out where this comes from and explore where does, where does this come, where this idea comes from. First, there's this sort of defining mantra of the culture that says you need to know exactly what you're going to do with your life and have this clearly laid out passion when you're 18 years old, which again is absolutely insane because when you're 18 years old, you don't have enough life experience and you don't have enough data points to make an informed decision about what you want to spend your time doing. I think that that is is actually uh, often what what keeps people stuck with no idea where to start. Right? Is that I'm I'm not sure where to start. So that actually is is an opportunity to say, okay, you know what? I'm not sure where to start. So I am going to explore a bunch of different things. I think the the thing that really has become very apparent to me over the last ten years, and this is something I only rec- recognize in retrospect. Keep in mind, but. Tina Selig is a professor at Stanford, a really, really brilliant woman. Uh, you wrote a book called Insight Out. And one of the things that she found after looking at numerous entrepreneurs, as well as being somebody who talks to college students at one of the most elite college you know, universities in the country, is that passion actually follows engagement, not the other way around. We have this idea that oh, we're supposed to have this thing that we're passionate about that it's going to completely absorb us. But that's not the case because how could you know that if you haven't even tried this thing that you say you, you, you're passionate about? So I, I will say this. I was never passionate about interviews. This is not something that I woke up one day and said, you know what? I'm passionate about interviews and podcasting. In fact, I gave a keynote speech at Podcast Movement three years ago. And my condition for giving the speech was that I didn't have to talk about podcasting, which they thought was really out there. I said, look, guys, I am a storyteller who happens to use audio as one of the mediums in which I tell my stories. This is not how I want to be labeled. I think it's incredibly limiting. So if you're okay with me not talking about podcasting, I'm happy to do the keynote. And so I ended up doing the keynote. But the thing is that this is something that came about because of the fact that I had explored this interest and I kept exploring it long enough that it started to become engaging. So this is another thing that happens is that people don't give something enough time to get good enough at it that they actually become engaged in it. I write because I find it engaging. I find it as something that's very easy to capture my attention and keep my attention for extended periods of time. I don't have to 
uh, fight to do it in the morning because I enjoy it. And we don't pay attention to that. We don't pay attention to what it is that we find engaging. Now, the other part of this you brought up is way too many interests, which is also a problem. And, and way too many interests is often the result of a lot of distraction, uh, which is just a, a complete disaster in terms of where we are right now as a society. If you look, and even I have days like this. Yesterday, for example, was a day like this. I made the mistake of checking email first thing in the morning, which I wrote about in the book saying, this is the worst possible thing you could do for yourself. And knowing that, I still did it. And the whole day yesterday was just a total shit show in terms of my ability to focus on anything for even a few minutes. But I think when you have too many interests, the problem is that you don't have enough focus on one to basically get good enough at it to actually have it lead to a result. Because what happens when you have intense focus on something is that that amplifies clarity, that leads to flow. It's like putting a magnifying glass over something in the hot sun Inevitably, what will happen is that it will catch fire, but you can't put the magnifying glass over four different pieces of paper for two seconds and then wonder why they're not catching fire. But that's precisely what happens when people have multiple interests. So to kind of you know bring it full circle and, and really make this a bit more prescriptive in terms of what people can actually do. First, I would recommend deciding on a series of experiments that you want to conduct. Two, I think that you need to give those experiments a long enough timeline that you get enough data points to figure out whether this thing was worth doing. And I would say a month is a bare minimum in which you try these different things. And based on the data points that you get, you will have a sense for one, what you're good at, two, what you find engaging, and three, what you fucking hate doing, which you can stop doing. So the the thing that you also have to consider, and this is something that I wrote about just a few days ago, is that all advice, mine included, is context dependent. Okay, Most people take the advice of authority figures, uh, whether those authority figures be financial experts, whether they be online marketing experts, whether they be habit and performance experts or, or creativity, quote unquote, experts like myself, um, and they assume that okay, well, what this person is saying is gospel because of the fact that they have achieved this thing that I want to achieve. And that completely overlooks one major issue because in any so-called formula, there's one variable that throws off the entire formula. And you know, we talked about a little bit about this last time you and I spoke, and that is you. You're the variable that throws off every formula in any advice that's been given to you. And advice is context dependent. So when we treat the advice of, of you know, somebody like gospel without questioning whether that advice is relevant to the context in which we're operating, then that advice pretty much can lead to disastrous consequences. So I can sit here and I can say, okay, every morning you should wake up at 6 a.m. and you should write for an hour and a half. That works for me because of the fact that I don't have kids. I'm not in a relationship. I can make situations like this actually work. The thing is, if you're somebody whose situation is completely different, i.e. you have a day job, you have a family, the way you have to structure this is going to be different. The principles might be the same, but you have to really consider the context in which this advice should be applied to your life. And I think the the mantra of everybody should start a podcast is, is also one of those places that context should be considered. Notice the people who echo that mantra are often the people who actually have courses on how to start a podcast. And I think that can be said about a lot of things. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's 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 so true. It's so true. Like noticing where that advice is coming from is so important because, you know, people have their own agendas that they're trying to push. So 
I deeply appreciate that. So, okay, so let's let's look at this sort of reclaiming the the creativity within us, regardless of you know what our industry is, regardless of what our job title is, or you know how we've labeled ourselves, whether we whether we believe that we're creative or not. Because I hear I do hear a lot of people yeah. say that, right? I, I don't have a creative bone in my body. Yeah. Actually, just just before we move oh. on, what do you say to people that that say that? How, how do you address I don't have a creative bone in my body? Well, one that's bullshit. Okay, because <laughs> if you've ever made something that did didn't exist before, whether that be a kid or even, you know, a piece of writing, you have done something creative. Everybody in their life has actually done something creative. It's not that people don't have creative bones in their body. It's that they don't have a habitual way of expressing their creativity. The difference between people who are perceived by the world as creative and who perceive themselves as creative and the ones who don't perceive themselves that way is that they're simply in the habit of expressing their creativity on some form on a regular basis, hence the word habit. So I, I think it really starts with habit. And that's why we talked about experiments and data points. So I have been conducting all sorts of bizarre experiments using the internet from the time I was 20 years old. And it was only when, when I started to look back, I realized this thread of, oh, wow, the times where I've been most engaged in whatever I was doing was when I was using technology or the internet or the tools at my disposal to express my creativity in some form. I made a parody on a Bollywood music video with an old roommate from from the early 2000s. You can see it on YouTube. It's, it's ridiculous. It's titled Srini and Roshni Go to Tasty Curry. It's the stupidest thing ever, but it has like 8,000 views on YouTube. And you can't point a straight line from that to where I'm at now, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't worth doing. It was fun. It was interesting. And uh, there was no, nothing to that. We've, I think, gotten to the point where we consume far more than we create. So I think it really, where it begins is a, a decision to say, okay, I'm going to make a habit out of expressing my creativity in some form every day. Whether that means I'm going to attempt to build an app that I've been wanting to build for the last two years, or I'm going to write this book that I've always wanted to write, even if there's nobody to read it, just that the habit of writing uh, is a form of expressing your creativity. I personally like writing as a form of expressing your creativity, primarily because of the fact that it's cheap. It doesn't cost very much. It can be done from anywhere, and it doesn't necessarily require a lot of materials other than a pen and a notebook. Uh, and I also think it delivers an incredibly high ROI for such a, a simple activity. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that writing has fundamentally changed my life. And I, I really like this because this is almost like listening to your creative intuition, you know, listening to the parts of your mm. of your creativity, your creative gut that that are really leading in you leading you in a in a certain and specific direction. So okay, so that I think that gives us some good con context of of where to start. And I think you've kind of given some idea of the you know the challenges that that people face. But how does this methodology that you're talking about, you know start to not only release your creativity, but how does it start to build your brand, whether it's a personal brand or it's a personal following or or it's a a company following? How does it sort of play into that? Because you're really taking a a different approach than than most people are taking online today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the the thing that people often don't realize is that the seeds for your most resonant and impactful public work are often planted in private. It's what you do behind closed doors when nobody is watching, when nobody is holding you accountable, and when there's no audience to impress, where most of your work happens. So by the time somebody is listening to this, there are probably a couple thousand people listening to the two of us talking. But right now, while we're recording it, 
the only two people who are relevant to this conversation are you and I. Our job is to basically ensure that you and I have the best conversation uh, based on where we're at. We are effectively creating in private for an audience of one, or in this case, an audience of two. And the funny thing is that that's where the work gets done. Uh, that's where the real work happens. And the great thing about this also is that it also alleviates a lot of the pressure. If you don't have this constant need to be adored and validated by the public and you're able to express your creativity in volume, you're going to make creative breakthroughs and have output that will, will blow your mind. I, this is my, my ongoing joke about my writing process is that 90% of everything I write is absolute shit. Maybe 10% of it is usable. I remember my friend Nikki Groom, she said, you know, you're a talented writer. And I said, I, I don't agree with that assessment. I, I would say I could say maybe as an interviewer, I have a talent. But I told her, I said, you know, when I look at writing, I, I say I very rarely write anything worth reading. I just write a lot. And as a result, some of it is usable. Some of it is is you know, worthy of public consumption. And it, it turns out that this is not an isolated incident. The research actually backs this up. When Adam Grant wrote Originals, one of the things that he found was that your cumulative creative output mattered more than any individual piece of work combined. Uh, or your cumulative output mattered more than any individual piece of work. Now, if you think about it, right, you might have a podcast episode that is a dud. You might have a blog post that's a dud. But let's say that you have two or 300 podcast episodes or two or 300 blog posts. And one out of those two or 300 is so good that it effectively compensates for whatever you didn't end up doing on the previous ones. And so when you're able to create it in private, you're not even dealing with, with public consumption of this work. But even if you are dealing with public consumption of your work, it's no coincidence that Seth Godin is the writer that he is. Think about it. it this, he's such a perfect example of this. Seth writes something every single day and publishes something every single day. Does that mean that every single post that he publishes is going to be any good? Probably not. Uh, in fact, some of them are probably not great. If you go back and you look at some of his earliest work, even his books on Amazon, you'll be stunned by the fact that some of them are, are really just kind of duds. I, I remember I had a, a virtual assistant put together a list of everything Seth Godin had ever done, uh, every book that I could buy from, by Seth Godin on Amazon, and one of them was called Email Addresses of Famous People. <laughs> you know, um, The man who we basically say we, we'd need to invent if he didn't exist wrote a book called Email Addresses of Famous People. So. It's interesting because at this point, Seth is unanimously seen pretty much as somebody who's absolutely brilliant. But think about what it took to get there. And so when you create in volume, you're free from this pressure to say, okay, this one thing has to be absolutely perfect. And it kind of applies in, in virtually every area of your life. If you think about it this way, we're talking on man talk. So dating is another place where I've had to become much more apparent, uh, much more aware of this in my own life is that if you went into every situation thinking, oh, this has to absolutely work. This is my one shot. You're kind of hosed out of the gate because if it doesn't work, it doesn't live up to your expectations, you're inevitably disappointed. But if your attitude is, well, there's going to be other opportunities then you're not going to be disappointed by one that doesn't work. And I think the, very much the same thing applies to our creators. Nice. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more, man. I think that's so great. I love that you pulled all those together and <laughs> that Seth Godin has that book. I'm, I'm actually like curious to check it out now for some reason. Yeah, I, I remember when I came across it, I, I was stunned. I, I couldn't believe that. I was like, wait a minute, Seth Godin wrote this? <laughs> well, I think that's the thing is that we see, we see people, you know, in their prime, in their pinnacle, you know, who are producing such great pieces of work 
and then and then we have to realize that they all started somewhere. You know, Picasso started somewhere, Seth Godin started somewhere, Simon Sinek started somewhere. And and it's I think what's encouraging, it would be actually really interesting for for you know these types of creatives to to actually put out some of their earliest works that were never released so that people could see like look this is actually where i started and it wasn't great but i just kept at it and that's that's actually what made me the creative that i am today uh, yeah it, it absolutely is and it, it, i i've even heard old interviews that i've done and i am always horrified by how bad they are even things that i recorded two years ago when we were getting rave reviews from our listeners i still find myself cringing when i listen to them <laughs> i know what you mean yes i absolutely know it know what you mean i've gone back and like watched watch myself on stage from you know three years ago and listen to podcasts from a couple years ago and i'm like oh man what the heck was i doing so i'm i'm really curious because one of the big things that that you talk about in your latest book is is really around the environment and that seems to be so like a really huge focus for a lot of people i had benjamin hardy on the podcast and he was talking about you know willpower doesn't work and he had this huge focus in on the the psychology and the research around how important environment is and you know coming from a a creative background myself i know how how important it can be to put us in that sort of flow state and, and mindset but i'm curious to get your take on how we set up our environments mentally, emotionally, physically, et cetera, to, to produce yeah. the type of work that we know we're capable of. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Ben is absolutely right. Uh, I think that the title of the book was really smart. Willpower absolutely does not work. So we have to talk about willpower first, which will give you a very quick breakdown on willpower. Uh, probably Ben explained this in explicit detail, so I won't spend too much time on it. But willpower is based basically... Uh, Willpower is something you have in limited supply when you wake up in the morning, and the thing that causes willpower to be depleted is making decisions. And with each decision, your willpower gets depleted, and as a result, you make worse and worse decisions. So, for example, uh, one of the the funniest stories, and it, it's not funny; it's kind of tragic, but it, it is amusing when you when you go through it and think about how this happened. So, uh, I believe it was Elliot Spitzer uh, who they wrote about in uh, Roy Baumeister's book Willpower. So. Elliot Spitzer basically built up his career, and one of the primary things that he, uh, primary issues that he built his name on, was campaigning against prostitution. And do you want to know how his political career got destroyed? By going and seeing a prostitute. <laughs> and what's interesting is Baumeister made a really sort of interesting uh, analysis of this. He said there's very clear that if you think about the, the life of somebody like Elliot Spitzer, I guess it was, if I remember correctly, a governor, the amount of decisions that a person like this makes over the course of a day, their willpower is, is being depleted constantly. And so really, in a moment of weakness, when you have limited willpower, you're likely to make bad decisions. This is what if you've ever gone to the grocery store at the end of the day, you notice that you probably end up with shit you didn't intend to buy. Uh, it's just, you know, it's something that depletes throughout the day. And fortunately, the way that you preserve it is by creating environments that are conducive to the behavior that you want to have. So from a creative standpoint, I think that you, so we've talked about, so you mentioned sort of four areas. You mentioned your physical, your emotional, and your mental. So we'll, we'll kind of go into to all of these. So let's talk first about physical space. Physical space is incredibly powerful in terms of its ability to impact your behavior. So let's say, for example, that you want to do something like read a book every morning when you wake up. Well, if you have a designated physical space and you put the book out the night before, the moment you sit down in that space, the book is already there. And just because of the fact that you, one, don't have to decide what book you're going to read, two, you don't have to go through the action of get, uh, going and finding it on the shelf, you've done two things. You have, one, eliminated a decision, which preserves a unit of willpower, and two, 
you have done what's known as reducing the activation energy. So activation energy is the number of steps between you and a particular action that you want to take. And what's funny is if you reduce the number of steps between you and the particular action that you want to take, the likelihood that you follow through on that action skyrockets. So I put my uh, notebook and the book I want to read on my desk the night before. So when I wake up in the morning, there's never any question as to whether I'm going to spend the morning writing. I'm absolutely going to spend the morning writing because of the fact that the material that I need is right there. There's no question as to whether I will have the time to do it or any of that. It's, it's no longer uh, a question. I also have the same breakfast every morning. And I generally tend to plan most of my wardrobe very you know, during the week when I'm working from home, I just wear the same black t-shirt every day because I'm not going to see anybody. And so there's no reason to go through the headache of making a decision of, about what I'm going to wear. Now, that being said, this is something that I started to realize. And that is that just because you're working from home, it doesn't mean you should dress like shit because the way you dress is a part of your physical environment. So you know, Jim Bunch was a guest on the Unmistakable Creative, and he said that everything that you see, hear, smell, taste, or touch is an environment that is adding or draining energy from your life. That means the clothes that you wear, the food that you eat, the environment that you work in, uh, the car that you drive, the people that you interact with, the information that you consume, the podcasts that you listen to, the blogs you read, the books you read. And all of that has an, an impact on how you feel about yourself. Every one of those things impacts us both emotionally and mentally. And what's funny is that if you start getting very deliberate about the actual setup of each one of these environments, what will start to happen is that your behavior will actually become a byproduct of the environment. So for example, let's say that you want to eat healthier food. Well, what if you design an environment where the only options were healthy food? If you basically stocked your fridge with nothing but carrot sticks and celery and the kinds of stuff that is relatively healthy and you basically get to a uh, moment at the end of the night and you don't have chocolate lava cakes, which is my vice, uh, you're going to probably reach for the carrot sticks if you want to eat something healthy because that's your only option. And that's really where this power of using environments comes in. It can be applied to anything. So even that activation energy idea, one of the, the things that I do or, or used to do, and I haven't been as good about doing this, is that I would, uh, before I shut down my laptop, I would set up the writing software the night before so that when I flip open my laptop in the morning, the first thing I see is the writing software. And sometimes I would even use a prompt or a quote so that there are already words on the page. And just the fact that I don't have to go click, find the app, all that stuff increases the likelihood that I'll follow through on the writing. So that's kind of how we combine environments with uh, behavior and habits and, and the reduction of activation energy to follow through on, on habits. Incredible, man. I think that's, that's so helpful. And you know, a couple of, a couple of those things I've implement, implemented around just simple things like journaling and my morning routine, like having my yoga mat out so I can actually like go and do yoga first thing in the morning. Otherwise, you know, six o'clock in the morning, just the act of having to like pull the yoga mat out just doesn't do it. And so if it's already there for me, <laughs> I'm much more likely to do it. So I love this idea of combining the environment with the habits that are conducive for not productivity, but for, for us either being creative or, you know, being healthier. And so I, I really appreciate that. Uh, we're, we're running out of time. So just one last quick question. Uh, do you have any other habits or not like 
hacks, but, but do you have any other habits or productivity strategies that you would recommend for people who are wanting to be a little bit more creative in their day to day life? Uh, I think meditation is, is really phenomenal. I've become a bigger and bigger fan of it. The more I've done it, uh, you know, one of my old mentors used to tell me, he said that human beings are the only uh, species with the capacity to pause between stimulus and response. And the key, of course, to developing that capacity is, is meditation. And I have found that uh, even 10 minutes a day or even two minutes a day, frequency matters more than length when it comes to your meditation practice. And I, I loved something that Stephen Kotler shared with Chase Jarvis. And I remember trying it out thinking, okay, if this works the way, way he says it does, this should be really easy. And I was amazed that I could get through longer meditation sessions. It's just called box breathing, where basically what you're doing is you're breathing in a square pattern and drawing a box around your chest and basically four breaths in draws a square, four breaths out draws a square. And you'd be amazed how easy it is to get through 10 minutes of that. Uh, I think it, it really makes the whole process a lot easier. They, he told me, he said they were working with executives at Google who are the fidgetiest and you know craziest people you could find. And they, they struggled with this and, and they got them do, you know, doing it on a regular basis. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. Meditation has been a huge game changer for myself as well. So I appreciate you dropping that in there. Well, listen, man, it's been an honor to have you back on the show. Um, an audience of one, the, the book drops on August 7th. Is that correct? August 7th. And I'll also put together a, a list of a bunch of free resources that uh, will help your listeners implement some of what we talked about. If they just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash man talks, they'll be able to get all of that. Amazing. Love that. Yeah. So we'll have that link and the link to your book in the show notes so people can check that out. And uh, if you want to check out Cerny a little bit more and check out the Unmistakable uh, Creative, you can do so in the show notes. We'll have all the links for him, the podcast, the book, all in there for you to go check out. Uh, Srini, thank you so much for joining on us on the Man Talk show this week. And for everyone else that's tuning in, don't don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review. And uh, if you really enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out the last episode that we did with uh, Srini. Uh, I think it was about a year ago. Uh, and don't forget to man it forward, share this podcast episode with just one person. It goes a long way to getting us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. So thank you so much. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.